Anyone listening to this podcast right now grew up with film and television. It was a fact of life, right? So what makes us watch? What makes us willingly suspend disbelief and allow ourselves to be carried into a whole new world? Welcome to Burning Sofa. We're here to explore the art and the magic of the settings that bring us to places we've never been. It's called set decoration, but spoiler alert, it's not what you think. I'm your host, Betsy D, and I invite you to hear from some of the world's most renowned, award-winning decorators as they give us a glimpse of what it's like to transport us to the land of Oz, or the depths of the ocean, or the dark visions of the future. Yeah, as long as we can allow ourselves to believe what we're seeing, we'll stick around for the whole voyage. We hope you'll stick around for this. It's episode one of Burning Sofa. Hello, and welcome back to Burning Sofa. Today, we have the honor of speaking with Tina Jones, set decorator whose reputation precedes her. She is an artist of limitless imagination. She collaborates with production designers and crews around the world to create movies that are loved by hundreds of millions. Ms. Jones has created entire realities in periods from the beginning of time to well into the future. And even as she earns a growing pile of Emmys and Art Directors Guild Awards for her daring ingenuity, she inspires and nurtures up and coming talent in the industry. So we are especially thrilled to speak with you today. Tina, hello. Hi, Betsy. Hi. So Tina, how are things in the age of COVID over in the UK? Things are really good at the moment. I'm, as I think most of the world, sort of stuck in this, this weirdness of um, COVID-19. Um, and uh, the current uh, production that I'm working on has been placed on hiatus along with most other people. So just, just waiting to crack on and, and get back to work, really. It's really great to know that you're getting by and that you're preparing for your next um, amazing feature. And we will be excited to talk about that at the end of a few other things. But first, you've pretty much done the entire spectrum of film genres. In the fantasy category, we've got episodes uh, in season two of Game of Thrones and Aladdin. In the sci-fi genre, many movies, including Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. Action hero movies, what haven't you done? Uh, Spider-Man, Kick-Ass, with a solid dose of comedy. So including the best exotic Marigold Hotel and Kinky Boots, both of which I loved. For history, we can talk about the fabulous movie, The Queen, and the amazing The Last King of Scotland. Background on The Last King of Scotland, most people listening may not remember that brutal Ugandan dictator, Idi Amin. It is the story of actually the young Scottish physician who attends to Amin and his family. And Amin is played indelibly by none other than the great Forrest Whitaker. And the film was done in 2006, but of course it took place in the 1970s and it was shot in Uganda. Now I will shut up and let you tell us all about a few things. Let's start with working with international crews. What was, what's that like? Um, it's exciting. It's a real challenge because every country has, has its different problems and has its different advantages. And for example, The Last King of Scotland, Uganda, it was a weird one because I think it was offered to quite a few people. So what made you say, put me in? I think going to Africa was not something that a lot of filmmakers get to do in their career. And so obviously I think quite a few people were nervous of it. Um, I, I found it quite exciting. A lot of our prop men that we were using and my crew had never actually been to the cinema. So for them to work on a film was just mind boggling. And 
it was it was a big learning curve because they don't have the normal prop houses that we would be using here or in a lot of European countries. So um, I was often pulling things out of dumper skips on the on the street. Who is that woman picking the garbage? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and um, I had I had a good team of people, as you always do in in a foreign country. So I'd have a fixer and a, a buyer. But when I would be asking for things which normally you'd be able to get hold of uh, very easily, like, for example, uh, an office desk or a filing cabinet, this was something that was really rare. So they would often turn up with something that was um, smashed to pieces with a drawer missing uh, and covered in rust. And I'd think, I I remember a couple of times sitting, looking at a piece of furniture, thinking I can do something with that. And I thought, this is crazy, because at home, I would have a choice of 20, 30, all pristine pieces. And here I am looking at a piece of garbage with all the handles missing, covered in rust. You adapt. And so each country has its own challenges. But ultimately, it's always a, a really thrilling experience, especially with a film like that, because it was um, so dear to many people's hearts. And, and a lot of the people that we were coming into contact with had actually lived through this brutal re- regime and had seen their neighbours and friends slaughtered. Oh, my God. Even though it had happened like 40 years before, it was something that was still very close to people's hearts. So it was a tricky one as well. But, you know, we did it. And I think it looked pretty good, really. It was an outstanding film and um, it was very moving and important, I think, for people to see. So part of working in um, another country, I'm sure, comes down to cultural issues. Were there any of that with the Uganda team? Um, Yes, there was a fair bit because, like I mentioned before, a lot of them hadn't been to a cinema or or seen major films before. For example, I I had a, a factory, a local factory, that was producing a beautiful mirror for Idi Amin's bedroom that was all heavily carved with animal heads. And, and when I went past to have a look at it, the, the guy who ran the factory took me to one side and said, before you see this mirror, could you be very careful how you react? And I said, well, yeah, I, I'm sure it's going to be fabulous. But he said, no, can you, can you just bear in mind that if it is fabulous, don't tell them it's fabulous. <laughs> and if you find it horrendous and it's not to your liking, can you not say that either? And I said, why? And he said, well, if you react in a very positive way, they'll slow down production because they'll think that you think it's wonderful. And if you act in, a, in an angry, non-positive way, they'll slow down because they won't like your reaction. So I basically had to just go in and say absolutely nothing and not react at all to this absolutely fabulously beautiful piece of furniture but it it was difficult for me because of course you normally do react and and you either react with encouragement or you say that actually isn't what i wanted yeah it was a tricky one so this was an international crew but you must have a crew you ordinarily work with as much as i can i try and keep the same crew together because you're only as good as the people around you, ultimately. I have a very good production buyer. That's really becoming much more important now than maybe it did 20 years ago because you have to keep very strictly to a budget. So I have a a great production buyer and then I have 
wonderful art directors because invariably we end up making quite a lot of uh, manufactured props on the larger films. So you need a team of concept artists, art directors, prop makers. So the team grows according to the scale of the film. So a smaller film like, for example, Commuter, which is the Liam Neeson film, takes place largely on a, um, a New York subway train. That had a much smaller crew for me. There was essentially four of us, plus all the prop guys. But something like, say, Jurassic would, would be maybe 15, 16 in the set decorating department. And then on top of that, I would have a manufacturing team that were actually making all the props that had been concepted and um, agreed and signed off by the production designer and the director. So when you are forming a crew, what are the top considerations? What, what, what's, the, what's the thing you look for? It, it's generally people that I have worked with before or otherwise they would come highly recommended or I would follow up maybe their CV and call other set decorators just for recommendation. But I like to have a crew where we have fun, you know, because we're all working together. It's long hours. We're going to be there for a long time. So it's really important to me that they enjoy the whole act of filmmaking as much as I do. I do try and take most of my crew from job to job, if that's at all possible. But very often you do lose them to other productions if you can't sort of keep that rhythm of work going. Have you ever taken a chance on a newbie? And Yes, yes, many times. I've, I've got um, a fabulous young man with me at the moment. Originally, he's Hungarian. And when I first met him, he was a work experience. And he's now one of my um, junior assistant set decorators. He has a fabulous future in front of him because he's just very talented. And it's, it's a sad thing that we, many years ago, you used to be able to have work experience. But I think um, more recently, a lot of the production companies are limiting this now to either a two-week period. And of course, you, a young person cannot get enough experience or learn enough in two weeks. Moving forward, I think it would be great if the studios could see the advantage of actually using the talent that is now maybe at the end of their careers to bring these young people on into learning the proper way to make films. You worked on Spider-Man Far From Home. This is the movie where he goes on a class trip and he goes on a European vacation. Just gonna have some downtime, but then the plan gets blown to smithereens because he's gotta help figure out why a bunch of creatures attack everything on the continent. This again is another international crew. Now in this case, can you name a few, a few of those locations? Originally we scouted far more than we actually shot in. So we were scouting in Spain, France, Italy, Northern Italy, Venice, and we settled on London. We shot it all in a studio called Leavesden, um, just outside of London. And we built a lot of Venice on the back lot. So a lot of what you see is actually on the back lot in the UK. And then we went and shot the fairground, and a, a, well, it's not a fairground, it's like a, a light festival. That was all shot in Prague, just outside of Prague. Wow, man. Hey, Burners, we would like you to stick around for a little bit while we just take a fast break 
to basically shamelessly plug ourselves. Then we will be back with Tina Jones, who's going to tell us all about what it's like to shoot Spider-Man far from home in places that are, well, far from home. So we will be right back. Have you ever considered becoming a Burning Sofa member? Of course you have. We're only one episode into it, and you're already saying, oh my God, where do I sign? Good news, there's a place for that. Patreon.com slash Burning Sofa, where you can choose your membership level and have a look at all the excellent stuff you can get. Then there's also, as you are listening to this fine podcast, wherever that might be, rate and review option. And we hope that you'll use both or one or the other in the best of all possible ways. And we are back. And I've always wanted to say that, and now I feel extra cool. So we are speaking with Tina Jones, and she was just about to tell us more about working on Spider-Man Far From Home all over Europe. So let's get back to that. If you're shooting in all those places, and, and it is a European vacation, I'm assuming there are a lot of iconic buildings that you had to create? Yes, we, when we, in London we had to um, create um, at very short notice the interior of the Tower of London uh, and there was going to be a big fight sequence here so that needed um, a lot of consideration over the props. I have actually been to the Tower of London a few times and so I'm just curious which part of it did you create? I know there's the the place where that beautiful Hope Diamond is. Or yes, something. the Crown Jewels. Yes, it was, it was exactly that. Yeah. Ah. So we had a bit of artistic license because they wanted to obviously, in a sh very short amount of time, uh, screen time, you need to know exactly where you are. I think the actual room where the Crown Jewels is doesn't have as much armor leading up to it as we had. We did replicas of the crown jewels and we had fake horses that were dressed in armor and uh, weaponry. It was fabulous. So it's gotta be harder than it looks. You can't hire things. They're gonna be shot to pieces for obvious reasons. <laughs> so we had to purchase a huge amount of armor and have made glass cases with a lot of repeats because they would obviously want to be able to shoot again. So that, that was a challenge. Didn't you originally have the Eiffel Tower planned for that, right? Yes, I think earlier on we, we were gonna possibly be building the Eiffel Tower. We, we didn't get very far with that, thankfully. <laughs> um, but I think, I think it was a decision because um, at the time there was one of the other Marvel movies where we're using the Eiffel Tower. It went literally from the Eiffel Tower, which required very little set decoration, to the Tower of London, which required a huge amount. And that is like managing an army. It is, because you have, you know, you've got to, you've got to really think on your feet, because you have to consider a budget and production value, so you want to get the the most for your money that's going to be on screen. There's no point in buying a suit of armor that's going to cost $1,000 if you can buy 10 that cost $100. So you have to really shop around, but also you're running out of time because you've, you've got a short amount of time. So you're, you're having to really juggle the whole pyramid, you know, that, that typical pyramid you see in offices about sort of time, money and, and quality, you, you, you've got to, yes, exactly. And so you've got to give the quality in the time, 
under budget so you're actually having to try and achieve all three at once i am actually pleased to say i've never gone over budget because it's an important part of my craft it's very tempting when i'm sitting down and i'm trying to choose curtain fabric to go and find some horrendously fabulous fabric which is 500 dollars a meter but you're not going to be appreciated by your producer if you do that so you, you just need to be able to deliver the same quality but much cheaper and sometimes that might mean going further afield hence i'll often end up maybe importing stuff from india or spain or morocco complete change of direction here, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. It's a sequel to the original. I remember reading the book by Michael Crichton, uh, Jurassic Park, 800 years ago. And um, by the way, I love Michael Crichton, but who didn't? I guess he was married as more often than Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> but anyway, so in this particular film, the um, island's volcano suddenly gets all jiggy and it had been dormant up until now. But you know, so now the goal is to rescue the remaining dinosaurs from becoming extinct, although I'm unclear on how we haven't learned the lesson that maybe they should be extinct. We don't know. So what was it like working when you are in one location half a world away with a crew who's in the other half? We were essentially working out of Pinewood Studios, which is um, just outside of London, West London. Very small wonderful studio and we also filmed in Hawaii as well but I didn't do the Hawaiian bit that was um, Cal Lukes who came over I spoke to her about showed her the sets and what we'd already manufactured and what we'd been doing and then she went back and did all the prep for Hawaii I mean if you have to collaborate so closely with someone who's half a world away what does that feel like how do you how do you manage that Luckily, she made it very easy for me because we actually got on very well. And it was actually, it was the first time that I, I think I've ever actually worked alongside another set decorator because it can be often quite a lonely situation because you are working on your own. And I think what worked essentially very well was that Cal came over and saw what we were producing and what the director was liking and what the designer, how, how he worked and was able to work alongside us, but independently in Hawaii and continue the look that had been created in the UK. Okay, so I need to get into a little bit of juice about uh, the sets that you created for Jurassic World. Um, lots of different things going on. You know, not everything takes place while you're being chased by dinosaurs. There are some interior stuff. Can you tell us some interesting stories? I think one of the most exciting sets for me was the, the house, the main house, which had the classic young girl's bedroom, but she was a billionaire's granddaughter. So it wasn't going to be your normal young child's bedroom. So for me, it was quite important that this little girl would have everything a little girl would ever want. So the four poster bed, 
the beautiful rocking horse, all the wonderful toys. I have uh, a love of wallpaper and, and fabric design, as I'm sure most set decorators do. I can't remember what the expression is, art imitating life, is it? Or life imitating art? So um, I, in, in my bedroom at home, have um, a gold metallic wallpaper, which over the last couple of years, I've noticed how the light changes the room throughout the day. So uh, in the afternoon, when the sun is going down, it has a beautiful rose pink glow, and it's very different from what it is in the morning. I found when we were working on Jurassic, a wonderful wallpaper company in the north of the country in Scotland called Timorous Beasties. And they do a lot of beautiful hand painted wallpapers and fabrics. And they did one in particular, which was painted on a gold foil background. And I thought, wow, this is going to give a fabulous glow for the scene because a lot of the scenes in the, in the young girl's bedroom are at night. But it was something that I felt was going to be very special for the movie. It looked beautiful. The little girl's bedroom sounds totally magical. Talking about the library. The library, um, that was a challenge because of the, the sheer scale of the library. And you would have had a huge amount of dinosaur bones and paleontology. The production buyer came into her own because she managed to find a paleontologist, an American paleontologist, who was actually inspired to study paleontology by the very early Jurassic films and he lent us a real dinosaur bones. What? We rented from him some of the dinosaur skeletons and he put the dinosaur skeletons together for us and we filled glass cases with a lot of the things that he lent us. Books, we made a lot of the books. So the books are actually fake that you see in the library. But I, I thought it was quite a fabulous connection that here was this man who'd made a career out of dinosaurs that was inspired by the very first Jurassic yeah. film. So um, continuing this wild ride of your amazing career and all the incredible things you've done, I'd love to talk about the Aladdin movie that you worked on. And there's a scene with a crowd and a camel. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, the production designer, Gemma Jackson, she is the designer of Game of Thrones. So we did Game of Thrones together and then we did King Arthur. And she is the most amazing woman. She's, I know what she loves, I think. <laughs> when you're working as a set decorator, it's really important to get a, a, a good relationship with your production designer because you need to get inside their head very quickly. And you need to be able to know what they like, what they're expecting of you, but you also want to come up with ideas um, without obviously treading on their toes, but within the parameters of the budget and what's expected by the director. And so we had um, a scene where Ali is riding through the palace gates and it was going to be a big, fabulous dance scene and Will Smith is coming in as well. We initially were going to put Ali on the back of the camel. I think another way that UK are very different from how they work in America, we look after animals as well, the set decorating department. So we went off and found a guy who had camels 
the more I looked at them, the more I thought it's going to be pretty ungainly for this actor to be riding this camel through the palace gates because they're not the most graceful and easy to ride animals in the world. And so I, along with my concept artists, we had designed a wonderful saddle and bits and pieces to go on the back of the camel. And they looked great, but they didn't really take him that high. And a lot of the dancers were going to have huge um, headdresses. And I, I kept thinking, he's, it's really all going to be the same level. It's not going to be, he's, he's not going to be placed above the crowd. So I started just doing a bit of research into carnivals and looking at Rio carnivals and Las Vegas. And, and, and the more I looked, the more I felt that he needed to be on something like a carnival float. And then ping the light bulb. And I thought, what about a camel made of flowers, made of marigolds? And so I went to Gemma and I said, what do you think of this idea? And she said, yeah, that's great. Go and ask Guy and see what he thinks. This um, is Guy Ritchie we're talking Guy Ritchie, yeah. We'd already worked with him on King Arthur. So I did know that he, did, he does like the unusual and he, he loves people coming forward with ideas. Generally, what does happen on a lot of productions is you will have what's called a show and tell with your director, where you regularly show them concepts and ideas. So we had a show and tell with him and we showed him these ideas because by now I'd asked my concept artist to draw a huge camel, which was on a float with Ali on top. And Guy saw the concept and he said, wow, you know, that's amazing. Let's make one for Will as well. And so it was like, oh, great. Camels for everyone. <laughs> so, um, so Will had, he had a very different float. But eventually when we had made the camel, which was probably about 24, 25 feet in height, I think it took about 27,000 fake marigolds that the poor prop manufacturers were having to push into our polystyrene camel. Um, but he, yeah, he looked fabulous. It actually brought a tear to my eye because oh. it, it was the biggest prop I'd ever had to deal with. But he sort of came alive. I've got to say, Aladdin was the most incredible film to work on because for the first time probably in my career, the brief that Gemma gave me was be as colourful as you possibly can because this is a Disney movie. Man, it was. It was beautiful and it was colourful and it was very Disney. And Tina Jones, you are magical. Thank you so much for joining us. We are so glad to get a chance to talk to you this week and guess what, listeners? Also next week. So join us next week. Now, of course, I'm not going to let you go without reminding you that you can find us at burningsofa.com where there's all sorts of extra good stuff because that's why websites exist. And we are likable and followable we think, at Burning Sofa Pod. That's both Twitter and Instagram. And then, of course, for you people who want and need to become members, we would love for you to just head on over to patreon.com slash burningsofa and throw money at us. We are okay with that. That's it for this week. See you next week on the sofa. <laughs> <laughs>